The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Everybody, welcome to this special experimental edition of On the Rag. This is something I've never done before. Uh, I am Alex Casey in the spin-off offices, as always, and I am joined by the powerhouse of women behind the the New Zealand film The Rehearsal, which is premiering Saturday night uh, in the New Zealand International Film Festival. Uh, so, do we want to go around and kind of introduce ourselves? Hi, I'm Emily Perkins, and I co-wrote the script with Alison McLean and I'm Alison McLean and I <laughs> co-wrote with Emily and also directed the film I'm Carrie Fox and I'm an actor and I played Hannah Bauer in the rehearsal mm-hmm. it's very exciting congratulations everybody first of all I was lucky enough to be able to watch a sneaky little kind of time release version of the film on my laptop in the office um, it's fantastic. You must all be very, very proud. I'm also got to admit I'm a little starstruck, as I've already said off mic. Um, I studied both Emily and uh, Alison at but university. Not Carrie, <laughs> unfortunately. She tried unfortunately. to Google me as I walked in the door. <laughs> I said, "Don't do that. That's just humiliating." There some, no, there were some great photos actually, though. Of so. my body with someone else's head on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, my head with someone else's body. <laughs> yeah, no. We all know who we are now, so that's great. Um, uh, yeah, how do we start? I guess what I'd like to know is each of your journey into the rehearsal. At what point did you all get involved? Because this did start as an, as an Eleanor Cashin novel, if you didn't know, uh, dear listener. You know, it came from a woman and it, it kind of went to a woman. So I'd kind of be interested to know where you came in in that, in that stage. Uh, yeah, I read the book about, I think it was about four years ago, and really loved it, been looking for something to do back in New Zealand, and I really um, was excited by the book, because it's very audacious, and it's very female, it's very subjective and intimate, it's about young people and contemporary, and I've been looking for a story to do here, and it just sort of seemed like, you know, full of amazing potential, and I really responded to a lot of the themes, um, you know, young people in kind of a state of becoming and um, and a lot about performance and um, performance in art and in life. So so then I brought it to Emily. 
Yeah, and I had read the book. I'd been sent an early copy of the novel before it was published um, from Fergus Barrowman, the publisher, um, for a quote. And I, like everybody who encountered the book, was just astonished by it because it is so um, sophisticated and playful and intense and dramatic and you know, you're, you're reading this incredibly sort of um, sensuous, sharp novel and it, and it was written by Eleanor when she was 22, so it was a phenomenon. And uh, so when Alison said that she was, you know, looking for somebody to work with her on the script, it just seemed like, great. Mm. I mean, I was a big admirer of Alison's work and, and the producer's work, and so just, yeah. Yeah, how long, how long was that process, the adaptation Probably about three years, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It always takes a long time. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm. And Kerry, when did you when did you get get on board? Uh, well, at first I didn't get on board because I had brunch with Bridget and said I really want that role in that film, and she just didn't say a word because they'd already cast someone else, which <laughs> I didn't know, but I did find out through a mutual friend. <laughs> Bridget, Bridget is sitting in the corner. I'll just point out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, God, those those bitches! <laughs> what are they doing? And then, um, then actually, Alison wrote me this most uh, gorgeous email asking <laughs> me if I play this role, which has changed from mm-hmm. the book. Right. Um, is a different personality and is a different figure. Um, I think that's the big thing that a lot of people who've read the novel, the rehearsal, mm-hmm. will um, see significant differences in the, the film. How real was it for you? I'm assuming you've been through the drama school process mm. to get to where you are now. What was that kind of process like? Was it was it similar in any way? Extremely similar. Yeah, it's like some sort of weird deja vu in many ways. Actually, <laughs> doing this job. I mean, I went to drama school in Wellington, and um, and what uh, this team made the students do, um, the acting students, the actors. Mm-hmm. in the process of making the film just brought back so many memories for me. They, and they were completely immersed yeah. in, in doing the job and being students and being a united group. And we had real acting classes, we had real movement classes, we had real voice classes. Um, and they worked as a team. They felt as very much as one unit. Mm. And Alison had really guided that. And everybody worked towards making them feel very secure Mm. And part of the whole, um, and I think that really comes out in the performances, doesn't it? it mm. Everyone's it very, very wealthy yeah. and rich, and it, um, that's not the not in those sort of terms, but what they present is very, oh. very rich. It was like a, a really compressed version of a year of drama school that mm. has happened over the rehearsal and shoot period. The mm. connections that yeah. the students made together, and were and we did very some- intimate, very quickly, mm. and we did something I've never done before that was kind of wonderful. We brought. Carrie in as Hannah the first time. I remember we did a screen test that day, so she came in in her full like costume and makeup, and she worked with the students in pairs or singly, and they're working on scenes from Pinter's Betrayal. And so she came in as Hannah, and I really and we'd had a conversation, but it's not like I was directing her in any way in that kind of moment, and it was it was quite something like it was like a force field had kind of entered the room mm-hmm. and we're all a bit too scared to talk to her, me very much included yeah <laughs> i was terrified i do <laughs> I was like flashbacks to you know when you have to do drama at school and you don't yeah. like it yeah. <laughs> like, yeah yeah i did i was a big fan of the um 
I like the drama teacher aesthetic, like the shirt, like <laughs> <laughs> looking like, very sleek. The and sleek looking... hair, the shirt, the pants, timeless look. I A little bit it. Susan Sontag. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Great. Yeah. Our drama school aesthetic was not that. Our drama school <laughs> back in my day, we were above a above a. Um, a pool, t- uh, the snooker rooms, and you know we had low ceilings. So whenever we were dancing, the tallest ones would hit their heads on the roof. We had pillars in the middle of the dance studio. We had the skanky carpet for our voice studio, where you had to put your face down on the floor every day. <laughs> and our main aim, really, during the week, was to see if we can get in the staff room and steal the Tim Tams. Nowadays, I bet none of the drama students allow themselves the slightest bit of chocolate. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Wow! Did you wear all black? No, no, no. Oh, Strangely enough, I wore orange. Wellington, <laughs> <laughs> I wear lots and lots of orange and green. Oh, nothing's changed. <laughs> there are definitely orange tights right now. <laughs> I will say that. Um, did you spend a lot of time in drama schools? Kind of by yeah, I went, went, I went there. I went to Trivacari oh, as well yeah. a couple of years after Kerry. And uh, so I had a lot of yeah. um, <laughs> repressed memories to uncover and draw on. Actually, that was a, such a pleasure writing the drama school stuff. And, um, you know, obviously there's a huge amount of it that's already in the book. But one of the things that I think is really true of that kind of intense training that the students are doing together is that yes it's sort of painful and sometimes shocking and all of that but it's funny too it's like really funny and really uh naughty a lot Mm. of the time and they they were some of my best memories of drama school was just the 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 fun we had so you know it was it was great to get a chance to put that in and yeah it's one of those you know I think any kind of arts training is intensely personal so you've got all of that juicy material to work with and sometimes it's worked with in very um, unsafe ways and so that's something that is, ha- happens in the film of the rehearsal. Mm. Mm. Uh, I was interested watching this. I liked that there was a woman, a strong woman in authority and, and the, most of the teachers in the school, I think, are Well, the two strongest the, yeah. personalities are definitely women, yeah. Yeah, and there's yeah. kind of... You know, there it's all kind of the main story weaved through it. The the sort of crime or the the thing in the centre of this film is also a woman's story. I wonder if that was something that attracted you to it, based on your kind of your history of filmmaking, Alison. Um, I don't know that. Um, it's it sort of evolved that way because the, mm. the character's written as a man. The the drums teacher was a man in the book. I mean, we decided to make him Hannah, woman, and um, yeah. I mean, I think. We talked about it quite a bit, and I think we decided that it was sort of more fresher in a way and something that we hadn't seen before than a kind of predatory male acting teacher, which, you know, the mm. kind of guru, male guru, which perhaps you've seen before. It's a bit of a trope in a way. So it seemed more exciting to have a woman, yeah. a particular kind of woman with that was very, you know, forceful and yeah, a woman kind who's, of full, complicated. You know, she's really yeah. full, complicated. She's in her mm. power. She's kind of, um, you know, she's got a life behind her and she's in the middle of uh, a place where she's not necessarily expected to be. And so she's vulnerable. She's got a big investment in protecting that vulnerability because of her powerful role. So, yeah, we, we enjoyed the complexity. Mm. You definitely get the sense of her trying to hold things together. When, it, when everything seems to be falling apart, kind of. It's just like life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no acting there. <laughs> um, I also thought it was interesting the way that the... Is this a, is this a spoiler? I don't know. 
the, the <laughs> it's hard to know, eh? The, the, the sexual crime at the centre of the film, I suppose. The way that it was treated, uh, having, you know, there were some people saying, I knew I, it wasn't your fault, and some people saying he's a monster and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that more nuanced in the film than it is in the book? There's kind of this strange... There's no, there's no hard line, I guess, on how that's viewed in that world. I, I think the book really deals very closely with it in a similar way, which mm. is that the girls view it one way and mm-hmm. the adults around them view it another way. They've got a totally different perspective. But what I think the book did very well and was part of what I, was so interesting about it is it got right inside that, um, that sense that you have of your own agency when you're a 16-year-old girl or 15-year-old girl and you don't have any sense of being exploited or whatever you just doing what you're wanting to do um but of course everybody around that person sees it very differently because they they can see the power dynamics and you know I don't think we wanted to present privilege one view over another did we Mm. yeah and I mean but the other thing is of course that that girl's experience of having you know something with an older coach it's she might have a different experience, perspective on it, you know, a few years from then, because exactly. it could actually ruin her life, but she doesn't see it at the time, you know. Mm. So, but we didn't want it to be a sort of black and white kind of sexual abuse story. Like it's, you know, it's a lot of different viewpoints on it. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that's perhaps interesting in the film is that there are a lot of different interpretations of that central event, and you know, it's viewed in a lot of different ways. So I guess as a viewer, you sort of make up your own mind. Mm -hmm. I do think that what the film does, um, that the book doesn't do just by the nature of the the medium, is that you see this young girl Mm. with an older guy. And that's, um, you know, visually that has a real impact. Mm. Mm. I wondered the central kind of thing in the film. Oh, sorry, did you want to say something? She's laughing. <laughs> it's just that, you know, that's the question, isn't it? It brings it up very well visually as well because the, the young girl seems so cool and so sophisticated and in control when we actually see her and he seems such a sort of tosser. <laughs> that it doesn't, you're also affected by what you see. Yeah, yeah. I wondered uh, in the film the kind of the, I guess, the eternal issue anyone who creates art or does anything where they take things from their own life or the people around them is you know taking things from other people other people's stories and using them I wondered if that was something you've encountered in your own lives does that ever come up as a problem or you know something that's divided people what do you want to say yes (laughs) Carrie's really laughing this is a really long long laugh it's quite strange I have had someone yeah write a, a book yeah, go on. About you. <laughs> Based on you. <laughs> With lots of intimate stories and details about my life. Right. So you, you were that. there. Really? Yeah. yeah. I was really wow. sorry I brought that. This All is right. like the rehearsal right now. My God, it's like drama school. Didn't have a long term of <laughs> negative effect on me. Yeah. It's, so you were the subject of it rather than... But no, but, but nobody was aware of that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, certain people were. My friends were. Yeah, I think it's something that because I teach creative writing, it's something that comes up in class a lot. Is yeah. you know, is this my story to tell? Um, I, I, there are so many different questions around it, and I feel like everyone's got to, you know, draw their own line. I've done events, public events with writers, 
um, you know, very well-known writers whose views on it are way more ruthless than mine. They mm-hmm. would say, you know, the art always comes first, the story always comes first. You, you know, I, I would rather have the novel than my mother, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that. Wow. Uh, and and you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, it, it really gives you pause. Um, I've I've changed things at a late drafting stage when I've thought that I would be betraying a confidence. I th- I think I've definitely done that consciously once. Um, you, you know, you're drawing on things from life and that you observe and you've lived yourself a lot as a writer. So you you've just got to let make sure that the oxi- I always think of it as the oxygen of the imagination has to come into it. You know, I'm not a memoirist, I'm not a non-fiction writer. It has to work as fiction. So even if something starts off in life, it absolutely has to take off and become its own fictional thing for mm. it to work. But it's yeah. the same in the work that I do. I mean, everything that I do is based on something that I've either seen or experienced. Mm-hmm. And it's either, I'm either basing it on my own experience with people who are very close to me or people who are very close to me and their experience that they've either, either related or I've seen or, or sometimes complete strangers, but it's based on something I have observed. Mm-hmm. Has anyone ever called you out for it and been like, that was me <laughs> that you were doing just then? <laughs> um, have they ever? I, think I don't know. I can never I, remember I, if it was... Probably too good. Who probably too good. It was, but there's some quote from somebody like Evelyn Waugh, which is that you can um, use you know, somebody else in your fiction as much as you like and they can be as recognisable as you like as long as you make the character good in bed. <laughs> and they're not going to complain. <laughs> yeah. But have you, yeah. No, I grapple with that all the time as a writer because I'm constantly wanting to steal things and mm. eavesdropping on people and watching things. And I keep carry a notebook and I'm always writing notes, you know, that I take from things that I observe. And I'm sort of like a magpie that way. Um, and there are times when it's been personal stuff where I've ended up asking somebody because I thought that, you know, so it's often it's. If it's a creative person, I think, oh, they might want to use that story themselves, mm-hmm. you know. I was just, yeah, like I was just, like I'll write down, like a friend of mine the other day told me about getting a snake out of his house and, and you know, vacuuming the snake up. It was just the most <laughs> terrible, <laughs> visible story. And I wanted to, oh I was thinking I wanted to use that. But I thought, well, I have to ask him because he's a filmmaker. He may may want to use that story. And that, and that so is the case would, that writer's you know. conversation yeah. is, you know, I'll have yeah. dibs on that. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. yours, that's Proprietary, mine. yeah. <laughs> the snake in the vacuum belongs oh, to everyone awful. now. Oh, it's just awful. No, that's <laughs> right. I blew it on public. Yeah. <laughs> Um, something else I liked in the film was the little hidden Easter eggs. Um, I noticed the luminaries, <laughs> big old copy of the luminaries uh, mm-hmm. in the office, and uh, Eleanor kept behind it. your head. It was behind, behind your head, head in the office. Yeah, I never noticed. You were there. You'll notice it. You'll notice it next time. I didn't have my glasses on, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Eleanor Catton at the kind of the opening night and stuff. I wonder where those decisions came from. You know, they they just. You know, they occur to you along the way, you know, or they're just there. I mean, it just, obviously, it's a nice thing to have those little mm. homage, you know, moments or, you know. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy that kind of thing. So it's just like another level in the film for people who might know her or, you know, pick up on that. I, yeah. I enjoy that in a film. Who mm. doesn't have a copy of the luminaries in their book? Right, right. It's just, it's just true to life. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's time for our first segment. People who listen to On the Rag will know about this. This is a notorious cool tips segment. Um, I'm going to ask each of you if you have any advice that you'd like to pass on 
it doesn't necessarily have to be about working in the industries that you're in. It could be about carrying a giant bag with a small thing of arnica in it, as Carrie uh, all showed us earlier. <laughs> so yeah, is there anything, any advice you'd have for young women who want to who wanna make films or write novels or be in films? I um, had a, a sort of supervision session with a young woman the other day and I found myself saying something to her um, about self-doubt and about kind of trying to get beyond that and, you know, get get your work done, which I'd said to myself when I was doing a writing course, like, you know, when I was in my early 20s. And um, it, it, I don't know, how good is this advice for a young woman? It's pretend to be a guy. <laughs> that was my advice. That was my mm. advice to myself and it was my advice to her. It's like... You know, obviously, that's a very big generalisation oh, that men don't suffer self-doubt. We know that's wrong. But at the same time, I saw around me all the time in my early 20s guys just making stuff. They weren't suffering conniptions about whether or not they mm. had something important to say. Mm. Uh, they were perfectly happy just playing, just mm. making the work, making short films, making, mm -hmm. you know, writing stories, getting out there, getting published. And I remember vividly standing in a kitchen of my flat in Mount Victoria and saying to myself, just pretend you've got some testosterone coursing <laughs> through your system. And, yeah, so hopefully yeah, hopefully that worked for mm -hmm. but but, that, but that's a very, very big question, and that, I think that's a really important thing to discuss, is this whole issue which we get to is, is why do so few women make films? And I think it does come... I've written about it in, in The Observer, and, you know, different things it's because of this question of self-doubt. Mm -hmm. And I think that women see, assess the risks and, you know, and that, and that assessment free, freezes us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it yeah. happens over and over again. Yeah, they find ways to stop themselves, I think. Mm. You know, and I've struggled that, with that myself. I mean, I, I think my advice would be similar to Emily's in the sense that I would say if you want to make a film... If you want to make films, if you want to be a director, and I really want more women to be directors because there just aren't enough of us, um, is to just jump in there and do it. You know, like like don't don't get lost in sort of um, all the reasons why your excuses of why you can't do it, and and or wait for you know proper funding or those kinds of things. I mean, I think that there's always a way within the resources that you have to to be working and making stuff. And I mean, that's why I think someone like Lena Dunham is really inspiring because when she got started, she was making all these different kinds of video pieces and and web series and putting them online and you know just like learning in public and just getting it out there and I mean that's the most perfect training mm. and so I, I think yeah that that would probably be my hmm. advice yeah it's great advice Gary oh gosh <laughs> my advice for people who want to make a film uh don't be protective of your stories discuss don't feel that you can't share your stories like yeah. Like you just did before about the snake and the vacuum cleaner, or whatever. <laughs> it's not my story. It's not. Yeah, it's it's. If for, people often fear that other people are going to steal something from mm -hmm. them, and if you if someone's going to do that, then they are pretty worthless, and what they will make as a result of their worthlessness is probably going to be shit, so no one will see it. Mm. So you can still carry on and do your version of it, um, uh, and with integrity and it will be better than theirs because that person stole it 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think and also, so, and so, yeah, so nothing. True. If you're open about your ideas, then you get support and 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 you get a, you get feedback and you can improve on it. It can become better mm. because you have the opportunity to listen to people. So share, discuss. You know, say I'm going to make this film. Yeah. Don't mm-hmm. don't yeah. keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't be too frightened. And on to every say that level, you're do it. I think creatively, like I have another rule in my class, which is no hoarding. And and I, that's the similar thing yes. to what you're saying. But it's also about it's you've got one great idea, brilliant. Use it, make something with it because you're going to have another one. Don't freak out <laughs> that you've only got this one thing. You've got to sit there and polish it until you know <laughs> it's totally perfect. Like but yeah. The, more, more will come. That's exactly the same thing I said to these actors because I did some acting work with them mm-hmm. and during the rehearsal was this, there's a big fear in actors that if you do a great scene or you do really well within a piece of work that that's it, you can't do it again, you can't repeat it or it'll never come again, you've used it up. But that's exactly the same. It doesn't get used up. Acting is a muscle mm-hmm. that the more you use it, the more you have, the better it gets, you know. It's like a trampoline, that the more you bounce and the more you delve to the lower depths of the emotional extent that you need to deliver what you're wanting to, the more resources you have. Yeah. Um, Mm. So don't be frightened of delivering. Mm. Mm. Just get it all out. I think that's Mm. a really interesting point about sharing, not being afraid to share and collaborate, especially I think women are taught, or maybe not taught, but it's just ingrained that they're kind of a scared maybe it's a sort of competitiveness because there's often only the one slot you know you're taught Mm -hmm. like you've got to keep it all because there's only one chance to be the one woman in this one thing and it's never going to happen again but I do kind of think sharing the load and uh, yeah I've really learned the kind of value of talking in circles much like we are kind of now you know and sharing that I never thought about that idea that Mm. women have just one shot because it's so rare Mm. that's probably true Mm. I mean I'd hope that it's getting more than one by the day but I don't know you look around you look at movie posters if it's not Ghostbusters if it's any other movie there's probably only going to be one woman if any yeah on the poster the you know girlfriend yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um on that note I thought we'd talk about the positivity behind this whole film that it is a very strong kind of female backing you know is that a rare thing in in your experience in the industry definitely yeah definitely rare. Yeah. Mm. it is rare yeah although I very much noticed the difference particularly on the crew side here, and, and meaning here and Australia as opposed to where I live, which is in the UK and Europe. You mean more women yeah. in the crew here? Yeah. Yeah. In New Zealand. So we're here And Australia, game. very much so. Oh. Yeah, very, very much Excellent. so. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. And so how, does it, how did the kind of process, did it feel different, you know, with, with a female strong, you know? I think we are all used to working with lots of women, though. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the most women I've ever worked with. It was funny, we'd have some meetings in pre-production and there might be, what, I mean, 15 people or something around the table and there'd be one man (laughs) and the rest would be women. I mean, that's a bit unusual. It's definitely unusual. But, I mean, I can truly say that we chose the best people for each role. It was, it was not like we were trying to stack it with women. That wasn't no. the, the, the goal, you know. And it just, yeah, it was, it was a little bit surprising that we ended up with that kind of almost imbalance in a way, especially in, in prep, you know. But, I mean, it was, it, was, it was great. It was really great. I mean, I think that for me the issue is more about getting more women into the roles of, you know, directing and producing and writing and just with a little more, you know, those roles that have more creative control. And then they can work with whoever they want to work with. I don't think it's about having, you know, 
necessarily female heavy crews. It's mm. it's more about getting, you know, those kind of makers, more women, you know. Yeah. Do in you, those roles, yeah. Do you think that glass ceiling is still there for people who are tr- trying to clamber yeah. up to the dizzying heights? I do, especially, I mean, I think it's more pronounced in America than here. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think it is more enlightened here. I mean, like, for example, the Film Commission, they do have a kind of mandate to try and, you know, redress the gender imbalance. And they're, you know, taking certain steps to, to do that. And I mean, there's no equivalent of that body in America. And I mean, it's just the t- statistics are really appalling. It's right? happening in the UK, too. There's one of the yeah. big funding bodies has made a decision to be mm, that's um, good. absolutely positively yeah. gender biased towards women filmmakers. Mm-hmm. It's funny, in um, creative writing, we have a diversity problem the other way around. Yeah, right. I'm like, if I get four <laughs> men out of a class of ten, I'm feeling like I'm really wow. winning. I'm getting a pretty, you know, I'm getting near balance. Um, yeah. It's yeah. And that's interesting to yeah. me that, you know, more, it's not the same in the, in the script writing workshop, which Ken Duncan runs. So, again, maybe women find their way into poetry and fiction before they find their way into drama. I don't know if there's any... I don't know. I mm. wonder where that is. Yeah, it'd be interesting Curious. to do a study. Because you can write between 4 and 6 a.m. Well, yeah, and you can write at the kitchen table yeah. while the... Somebody was really shocked the other day when I said, oh, but I always work then. I get up at 4 and I do my, all my work and then I go to sleep again at 6 and, you know, I have an hour or so, an hour and a half before I have to get the kids up. Wow. And that's, if I'm, ha- you know, if I'm busy and I've got a lot to do, then that's how I make my life work. What time do you go to bed? Oh, I go to bed at nine. When the kids go to bed, don't go That's out. how it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, have you seen changes in the industry in the time you've been working in, be it film or writing or, or what have you? Have you seen the gender skew shift or the dynamics change in any way? Do you think it's getting better? I mean, obviously New Zealand, as you've already said, is nailing it, which is great. <laughs> I'd say very, very slowly. Yeah. Too slowly, don't you think? Yeah, I think in mm. film it's particularly bad. I, I really do. And and with writing, there was a phase, I think when I first started being published um, in the 90s, there was a sort of phase where it was like, oh, my God, the only people getting published are young women. What's going on? Everybody freaked out, and they thought that there was like a big conspiracy <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And it's that classic sort of uh, misperception that if you have, like, one woman and two guys doing a, I don't know, a radio show or something like that, people think there's parity, mm-hmm. and there's not. But it's just because we're so used to seeing it skewed so heavily the other way around that you only need those little nudges and people start freaking <laughs> out that it's female domination. Um, <laughs> and it's definitely the case that, you know, women go into these writing courses or they, they're producing books or that sort of thing, but... I, um, certainly in other countries, I'm not so sure about New Zealand, the people dominating the reviewing culture are male. The people mm-hmm. who are getting reviewed more are much more likely to be men than women, mm-hmm. um, you know, treated with a certain amount of seriousness. You know, I mean, you know, the cliche, it's like a woman writes a domestic novel and she's writing a domestic novel and a man writes a domestic novel and he's Chekhov. Um, <laughs> or, you know, that's... <laughs> That's, there's still these very different perceptions mm. um, and say, that I've change ex- is happening very slowly. You know, I'm probably moving on to the next point. I've, there's been so much vilification for domestic work in, in my experience. You know, um, women I've worked with who've written stories that are considered not mm. valuable enough to be film 
Because they're domestic. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Have been completely... That, that sometimes the, the response, the critical response has been vitriolic. Mm-hmm. That what right have you to use this material as cinema? It's not serious. or Yeah. yeah. It's just it's horrifying. Even recently with The Dressmaker, which Kate Winslet was in, you know, mm. the vilification that she got in the UK for certain aspects of that, both that film, but her role in it and her age, you know, was just depressing it's and horrible. relentless and did serious damage to the response to the film. Mm. What, was the, what was the gripe with her age? How dare someone pretend they're 35... <laughs> How can anyone imagine that Kate Winslet was anything, if not younger than 35? <laughs> How dare you pretend to be five years younger than they were. They didn't, wow. they didn't mention the fact that I was playing ten years older than I am. They didn't mention the fact that the girl who was playing the ten-year-old Kate Winslet was playing four years younger than she really was. Mm-hmm. You know, none of that. It was just focused on her. That's incredible. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know she came under fire for that. Oh, awful. She's like the most ageless person. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess it's probably a reflection wider still of just the value on women's stories and domestic stories. And that yeah, kind I mean, I, I've had a project in the States that I've been writing that is the two leads are women and one of them is a woman of color. And it, it's sort of set in a domestic you know, situation and it's drama. And I mean, it's just all of those things are kind of marks against it, you know, mm-hmm. no matter, you know, w- what ambitious things I'm trying to do with it, but it's just that they're considered problems in a way, you know, mm. impediments to getting it financed. It drives me completely crazy. Yeah. Really? So you have trouble finding yeah. funding. Oh yeah. Stuff. I mean, a lot of people do. I mean, it's not like unique to me, but no. <laughs> But it does get harder. Just that's sort of another reason to say no if the, the leads are women, for example. Yeah. Mm. But yet also recently there have been so many changes with that, that and it's been so vocalised. You know, yeah, it's definitely like coming Carol up as a... Yeah. And um, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, and transparent. And, I mean, there's been, there's been yeah. a lot more lobbying, you know, especially in America, about, you know, the disparity and... So hopefully that'll yeah, start to have and an I effect. Think, you know, I, I have teenagers. I've um, two of my kids are teenagers. One's a girl. One's a boy. I feel like they can go to see things that they don't. They don't come with a gender bias in their sort of viewing habits in mm-hmm. the same way that you know might have happened. I don't know a few decades ago, where you might think, oh, that's for women or that's for men um you know we will all go to see ghostbusters as a family and everybody is as into it as everyone else yeah yeah and i think things like ghostbusters as much as they anger all these people who have had their childhoods ruined for whatever reason it's better than the first one (laughs) i'm saying it is is better it's way more fun yeah that's (laughs) amazing that it's even email can start now but i mean it really i thought it was a much better film the first one isn't that good, guys. It's actually it's, quite boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was an, I saw it off topic again. There was an amazing, uh, someone did a supercut of all the women in the original Ghostbusters. <laughs> and, what, and it's like, oh, librarian funny. who runs away. Right, right. Cleaner who gets hit by a ghost. And they're all just like, <laughs> it's just amazing. And I realised the reaction to that, how funny it was, so strong that there would be four lead women. And then just during the festival right now, I sit in films. You know, last night I went to the Everybody Wants Some, the Richard Linklater film. And I sat there and I was like, oh, I've been in this film for an hour 
and I haven't seen a female character yet really? who's actually spoken and uh-huh. been a character. And yet I'm not writing a, you know, I'm not getting all angry on Reddit, you know, being like, my childhood's ruined because I don't exist in this film. Well, no, because I think you've, you've become used to identifying with whoever is carrying the story. Yeah. And so if that happens to be a guy that's, you know, you, you've read your way into that you've and viewed your way that, into aren't that, you, in a way. you know, yeah. millions and millions mm-hmm. of times. Well, it's really annoying me at the moment is all those craggy old cragster old craggy old men who get these fantastic lead roles that go on forever and ever and change their lives like you know Brian Cranston and Breaking Bad and who's mm. the guy in Transparent you know Jeffrey yeah Temple. you know yeah yeah Jeffrey you couldn't Temple, ever yeah. imagine yeah. a woman looking like him pretending mm. to be a woman <laughs> <laughs> They yeah. were just, you know, imagine the shit she'd get. Yeah, that's <laughs> but that's allowed, whereas, you know, we've still got the old thing of women and not allowed to age. Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. They're not allowed to, obviously, it's the Kate Winslet example is they're not allowed to be younger, no. but nor are they allowed to be older. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you just have to CGI them or something. <laughs> they're just not allowed to exist. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. I was just reading about, like, I think it was Christoph Waltz or someone like that who only got made his big break when he was way too old for a woman to even be going near a camera you know <laughs> like it's really the disparity is is quite intense I don't know have, have you kind of how, what's your experience of that been like being in the industry I don't know I mean I purposely really played up the fact that my hair's gone grey mm. in the hope that I would get more work as older than I am right because you know I've had no work done on my face and don't particularly want to there are you know roles well, I mean, there are no roles that I know of. For, you know, the cliche is true, 40 to 55. So at around sort of, I was playing older and Let the Grey came through when I did Cloud Street, which was a beautiful piece of work in Western Australia based on the Tim Winton novel. Mm. I was playing older then. Right. And they thought, oh, well, this is really working for me. I'm just going to keep trying to play older than myself and grab those grandma roles <laughs> before anyone else does. <laughs> before Kate Winslet takes them off you. <laughs> right, right, that's yeah. right. The old hag. <laughs> Here's another tip. <laughs> Play grandma. Um, I thought we could go for a mansplain moment here. Has anyone got any instances of sexism in their line of work that they would like to laugh at or grieve over? And uh, just share the share the load. Why are you looking at me? Uh, well, no, I'm not sure I have. Yeah, it's a bit specific. Oh, one yeah. time I remember quite early on. This is the opposite of that. Actually, I remember one time <laughs> when I first went to work in the UK. It's, I smacked, you know, I just well, yeah, smacked a guy's bum who was the boom <laughs> operator. <laughs> And he got a real fright, and I thought, shit, that's terrible. That was a real, it was the reverse right. sexism. <laughs> that I didn't have the right, I didn't have the right to do that, but because of my then power, A, because I was much, much younger and therefore more powerful as an actress than I am now, and more powerful on set than I am now, you know, hitting him on the bum was the wrong thing to do. <laughs> That's really great. If our only instance of sexism is you hitting someone on the bum, I think, I think we're getting really good at this. <laughs> Sex, and why are we too afraid to be explicit about it? No, I just I, find that it, it's more insidious than that, more mm-hmm. subtle, and people yeah. don't necessarily 
state overtly their bias, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, say, working in advertising, which I do sometimes in the States, and you'll hear comments indirectly from someone who doesn't want to be named that women women aren't funny, or you'll get a comment like that, which is sort of laughable. Um, but, yeah, I can't really think of... I mean, obviously, specific. I have a tremendous response, both positively but also negatively, when I was in Intimacy, which was the mm. film I made with Mark Rylance, you know, and how people responded to that. But also Mark had a lot of shit thrown at him through it. I was talking to a casting director recently about it, and I said, oh... And, and he, they said that he... It, it took a long time for him to recover professionally from the um, negative aspects or reception to parts of that film. What was... Oh, sorry, I haven't seen it. Um, what, was the, what was the response? Uh, well, it was a, it was a, f- a film by a French... F- sex... A French... <laughs> French, <laughs> French filmmaker called Patrice Chereau who made La Reine Margot and it was based on a short novel by H- Hanif Qureshi who'd made... Um, who'd written My Beautiful, My beautiful Laundrette. Laundrette but also on a... On a short story about a woman and a man who meet once a week. Sorry, that's the gong. It's a four o'clock gong. <laughs> about a woman and a man who meet once a week and they have sex. And right. um, we were working towards portraying a relationship that was based on their sexual relationship in a truthful way rather than a romanticised or Hollywoodized way. Mm-hmm. And uh, people hadn't sort of seen mm. that on film mm. before. And it, it had a really significant impact on... on sexuality in film and mm-hmm. the portrayal of sexuality in film and the understanding of sexuality in film but was was very sometimes people thought shocking adventurous brave at its time yeah. which was like 15 years ago we made it yeah and um and mark rylance who as we know is considered to be the greatest living actor yeah. he's the bfg uh, yeah <laughs> but also he's you know fil- he finds film difficult um yeah, it was. Yeah, it was weird. It was weird and strange the repercussions for both him and I mm. on that. I think that's a good point. That when I mean, there are still taboos in terms of honesty that are around the way that we um, are allowed to behave as women, as men, you know, in sexuality in different ways, and that's changing enormously. I suppose with the rise of certain TV shows and and that kind of thing. But those. Taboos are still there, and they harm men as much as they harm women, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for everyone, they're, they're just these strange constraints. So um, the, the more things that, you know, can reach into a more honest portrayal of human experience, the better for all of us. Let's put it very well. Um, that might be a great place to end it. We always end with a yes queen, where we nominate someone who's inspired us or informed our work, or it's just great. I wondered if anyone wanted to put anyone forward. A whole bunch of yes queens putting forward some yes queens. Uh, <laughs> well, I think we'd all say Jane Campion. Yeah, I was going to say her. Yeah. 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 I was yeah. thinking of saying her and I thought I'd bet Alison <laughs> says her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now Carrie said her. I think, yeah, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. But also I was thinking about this question and generally I so love badly behaved women and I think it's partly because you know, I'm really pretty much a well, you know, well-behaved, <laughs> polite uh, lady, and I. But I really, I, I think that, yeah, often, I'm, I'm super drawn to women who just behave badly and Marianne Faithful. I'd like to see a bit more of them. 
Mm-hmm. She was in intimacy. When she left, she came and stayed with me when she left there all these sort of cigarette burns in the duvet. Really? <laughs> nice. <laughs> we were lucky we still had the house standing. Wow. So there you go. Cigarette burns, guys. That's, <laughs> that's what we've got to do. Um, everyone go see the rehearsal. It's going to be the festival. So we've got Saturday night. And Tuesday afternoon. And Tuesday afternoon. And Wellington. Yeah. And Wellington and Christchurch. Next, <laughs> yeah, next Saturday in Wellington. Yes. Sunday in Christchurch. Dunedin, yes. isn't it? Uh, yeah, I don't know the dates. And opens, Eden. opens, it opens <laughs> um, nationally on the fifteenth of September. Oh, there you go. Yeah, called Keep the rehearsal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we've got it right. We're all on the same page. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Emily, Alison, and Kerry. This has been fantastic. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Jose, as always, for doing a great job of producing. We'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.